We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, good morning. Welcome you in. Decided to speak on two different topics this morning, one uh, in this hour, one in the next. And this hour, uh, we're going to speak on the doctrine of divine judgment, the doctrine of divine judgment. Um, that's... Uh, a troubling teaching to some people. We were we touched on it a little bit in the book of Nahum, and uh, we may be back there tonight, uh, unless I bring a next section of Matthew 22. I have to decide which I'm going to do there. But um, Nahum is really about the judgment of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, and you see some of the picturesque language that's used in there, especially in chapters two and three, but also in chapter one. And you see God's judgment, and it's a temporal kind of judgment. It's, a, it's war, it's destruction, it's you know, making the, 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 the nation disappear, really. The kind of divine judgment I'm talking about this morning is not, is not that so much. It is the divine judgment of eternal punishment for sin. And the Christian teaching of that is that God will judge all sinners who have not repented and trusted in Christ. Instead, of their judgment being taken onto the shoulders of Jesus, it will remain theirs for all eternity. Now, this proposition is very unpleasant to most Christians. Maybe not this proposition in its generic form like I just stated it, but the actual, can I call it, implementation details of how bad eternal punishment is. And it's not only unpleasant to most of us, in fact, unpleasant to the, to the point that many churches I've been uh, reading and told uh, don't mention it at all. You know, they focus on the positive, which is positive, but if you forget the negative side, you don't have a whole lot of reason to flee to the positive. And so people get afraid of saying, you know, things about divine judgment and about hell and that. Um, you know, gone are the days when sinners in the hands of an angry God would be preached, which, by the way, I should read that sermon to our church sometime just for our education and edification value. Yeah, people are asking for it. How about that? Um, so that may be something that we could do uh, in the future, although I probably, well, actually, I don't know. I might give it just as well as, uh, as uh, Edwards did, as I understand his delivery was not... Uh, fiery, but the content was. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, um, spoke in a monotone. That's what I read. Yeah. And he just kind of reading the message and uh, letting it speak for itself. I'm sure you could, uh, you know, spice it up a little bit with a little intonation and a little up and down in the voice, right? But uh, anyway, um, so for that reason, the doctrine of hell and eternal judgment and eternal punishment have kind of fallen on hard times. Uh, and, and more than that, the doctrine is abhorrent to those who are not followers of Christ. 
It's caused some people to doubt the Bible or the God of the Bible or to suggest doctrines such as conditional immortality or annihilationism or even to depart from the faith altogether. And so one thing that I would start out by saying is this. It's, I'd like to caution us against an overreaction. If you stop and think about this for any length of time, it is very unpleasant. It is highly unpleasant. Um, It's not unusual at all for people to struggle in this area of Christian teaching. Everyone has questions on this and and other matters like the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and about creation and evolution and the like. Questions about these things are not wrong, honest questions. They're part of growing up into a mature understanding of the faith. But if you get to a point in your mind and you say, look, I, I hear that there's eternal punishment, there's fire, there's... There's, uh, there's, there's torment, uh, and you make a snap decision to just throw the whole thing out, you need to pause and, and do not press the eject button just yet. Take some time to think about the matter, get some counsel about the matter, talk to somebody who thinks and knows more about it. I, in fact, did, did that this week with a pastor friend of mine, and he had some excellent insights, having... Uh, 30 years more of ministry than I have under my belt, so I uh, appreciate that. Um, so recognize that, you know, in the, in the state that you're in now, young people or old, you may have merely a Sunday school type of understanding or knowledge of this doctrine because you haven't thought very deeply about it, and thus a, a Sunday school level of faith where you learn the basics but not entered into the meat of God's Word. Somebody said this uh, recently, God's Word is both milk and meat at the same time. A new believer can drink in the milk of the Word of God. He's not getting all of the depth that is there, and nobody ever gets all of the depth that is there. But, you know, I've long passed those days of, of drinking milk myself, and many I know of you have as well. But you know what? You find that the same milk is also strong meat if you really are studying and looking into the Word carefully. Not, not finding things that aren't there. Don't take me wrong that way, but to, just to think about what God is saying and how He's saying it. There is meat here as well. Sometimes people stay in that elementary state for a long time. Hebrews works on uh, us about that and says, you know, by this time you, you should be teachers, but you're dull of hearing and need to be reviewing the basics of the faith again. Some, however, when they come of age and are capable of more mature thinking in their late teens or early 20s, if they've grown up in a Christian environment, enjoy digging in and dealing with more difficult problems, like this one about eternal punishment. And if you're here or listening and have struggled in your thoughts with the matter of eternal punishment, consider this wise advice. Do not throw all of your beliefs about God and Christ out the window just yet, especially if you don't have a lot of perspective. Now, a lot of us think we have a lot of perspective when we don't have a lot of perspective. You know, if you're a young person in particular, you just don't by definition. Um, You know, watching one or two rants on YouTube is not enough to change your theology, I hope. Um, Youthful zeal and impatience can bring one to deny eternal punishment because it does not seem to make logical or moral sense. Even apart from outside influences, intellectual pride can cause a person who has thought about the issues without a full set of data to come into inner conflict. 
Okay, so does that make sense? You can have external influences that change you. You can have internal influences where you're just looking at it from a human, humanistic perspective apart from influences from the outside, and you come to conclusions that are like you got influences from the outside because your flesh, guess what, is just like the influences from outside because we're all made of the same fleshly, sinful nature to begin with. Now, the first reason I... I put here in my notes that you should be patient. By the way, these are not available yet on the website, nor is this morning's service. I will attempt my best to get those to you, but I just didn't feel like I was ready yet to publish those to, for worldwide uh, uh, uptake. So hang, hang with me here. The, the, the first reason you should be patient about this doctrine is that you're not alone. Many people have struggled with it. Some professing Christians have come up with alternative explanations because it's so difficult to reconcile the doctrine of the lake of fire with a loving and decent God. And these sorts of people have not departed fully from the faith. The second reason to be patient is that no one fully understands the ways of God. No one does. Even the most humble, knowledgeable, and wise among the human race cannot fully understand God. His ways are indeed higher than our ways, Isaiah 55, 9 says. You and I are likely missing important data that would allow us to properly evaluate the idea of eternal punishment. Just on the face of it, we have too small a view of God, too big a view of self, too small a view of sin, too little a view of righteousness. Because of our limitations, we're limited in all of our thoughts on those matters, but because of our sin, we're even further limited and so we need to slow down and not jump to conclusions, to be patient on this. His ways are higher. We're missing data. If we've not studied the Bible thoroughly on the issues of hell and the crosswork of Christ and taking God's wrath for sinners, then you are certainly missing important information. I mean, if you say, I don't believe in the doctrine of hell, and I ask you, have you studied every passage in Scripture that teaches about that? And you say no, then I say don't talk to me about how you don't believe it. Go back and do your homework, okay? Or if I ask you the question, have you understood how God dealt with the problem of hell? You see that cross up there? That's how he dealt with the problem of hell. And you're going to say, I don't believe that, yet God believes it, and Christ believed it, and Christ paid for it, and you haven't fully understood the wonder of the work of Christ on the cross, and you're going to tell me you don't believe in hell? You go back and do your homework. You're missing important information that's necessary to inform your mind and conscience about this matter. Without that, you're not qualified to make pronouncements about the appropriateness of eternal justice in God. You know, you say like in Romans, well, if God made me this way, Paul says, zip it. Listen to God. Don't be talking back to God. You're the, you're the clay. God's the potter. He makes what he wants to make. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He has he executes judgment on who he will execute judgment. He's explained himself in some measure in the scriptures. Um, the third reason to be patient about this is that you can exercise faith in the God whom you have learned from the Bible is all-knowing, all-wise, love, he's just, he's holy, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's all-powerful, he's kind. You have learned that God has loved the world. 
and gave his son to die in your place for your sin to take your punishment. You know these things to be true. So you should be willing to trust God while you wait to learn more about the doctrine of eternal punishment. You say, I can't fully understand it. You know, I don't understand why my friend has suffered and she's only 33 years old. I don't either. If it were my design, I'd let, give everybody at least 100 years. <laughs> you know, that would seem to be nice. But that's not God's ways. He has better ways. He has more wise ways. And we have to trust him. This is what salvation is about, isn't it? In large measure, trusting the one to whom we've entrusted our souls, trusting God. So you don't, you don't understand all of God's ways. Job didn't understand all of God's ways, but yet he trusted in God, didn't he? Well, he had his struggles. We, we read that throughout the book, and he had friends that didn't help him in his struggles, but let's make sure not to be like those friends anyway. Um, but let's exercise faith in God, uh, whom we have learned as all these wonderful attributes, and we can be patient as we, don't, as we understand eternal punishment. Let me also caution you against making excuses. Caution you against making excuses. Uh, this illustration was shared with me. Um, a man was uh, a pastor, but became very troubled in his heart about this doctrine of eternal punishment. And his, he talked to his former professor at seminary, and uh, they were walking along, kind of in a in a you know relaxing setting. Uh, just talking and enjoying conversation. And the man, pastor, brought up this struggle that he's having with the, the professor, and they talked about it a little bit. And then the professor asked him, do you have any sin in your life that you're hiding? And the man finally spilled the beans that he did. He had some very serious moral failings in his life as a pastor. And those were, in effect, causing him to put up a force field against the doctrine of eternal punishment because he didn't want to think about it. I'm cautioning you against making excuses. Sometimes doubts over any doctrine, including eternal punishment, arise because of a a spiritual shortcoming in the person with the doubts. Said another way, such doubts can arise because of sin in our lives. What sin may be in your life that causes you to excuse unpleasant doctrines because they're hard to reconcile with where you know you're headed? Do you have pride? Do you struggle with sexual sin internally, externally manifested? Are you perpetually angry? Do you lack gratitude towards God for the good gifts he has given you? Any or all of those violations is a a violation of God's standard of righteousness, and those prime your pump, prime you to make excuses like, I don't believe in hell anymore. Or there has to be multiple ways of salvation. Your flesh is at war with your conscience, desperately trying to cover over bad feelings of guilt, and this conflict causes all kinds of bad thinking and bad behavior. So don't make excuses about your sin. I try to change God's word to accommodate you when you're in that. Sin does that kind of stuff to us. It makes us think irrationally. God is the definition of rational, wouldn't you agree? So if you're thinking outside of his box, then you're thinking irrationally, outside of his ways. Now, let me help us consider 
one of the, or two maybe, of the primary objections to the doctrine of eternal punishment. First, somebody may object to the extended time of the punishment. This is kind of behind the doctrine of purgatory. You know, you kind of get your sins purged or purgated. Fire burns them off, so to speak, for a certain amount of time, and then you can be fit for heaven. But that kind of puts a time limit on the punishment for sin. You know, you say, how can God punish a man who sinned for 75 years, and he died, he lived 75 years old, and he died. How can he punish God with a, uh, sorry, how can God punish him with a punishment that lasts many more years than 75? Second, an objection may be raised about the nature of the punishment. The punishment that we read about in Scripture, which we'll talk about the details of later if we have time this morning, is so severe as to be repulsive to civilized sensibilities. I mean, it doesn't seem that it would fit the Constitution of the United States and its prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Be honest with me now. If you did something like that to somebody, burned them at the stake today, or something of that nature, that would not be right, would it? Both of the objections can be addressed together using an illustration. So the length and the nature of the punishment. Um, and here's the, the uh, illustration that I learned this week. If you smash your neighbor's tomato plant with a baseball bat, that's a sin. Okay. Um, I, I just can't think of a situation where you'd have to do that in self-defense. Okay. <laughs> You might not like tomatoes, but uh, let's, let's you know, work with me here, okay? Uh, there may or may not be unpleasant consequences to that sin. The neighbor may yell at you or call the police on you or get a personal protection order, I guess for his tomato plant. But um, that's a sin of a certain you know, consequence level. If you swing the baseball bat in a similar way, same action with the baseball bat against the neighbor's cat or dog and severely injure it or kill it, you most certainly will face trouble with the law and may even see jail time in our society. If you swing the baseball bat in the exact same way on the neighbor himself and kill him, then you will go to jail for a very long time or be even given the death penalty in Texas or whatever, okay, different states with different rules. If in addition you exhibited ethnic hatred toward the neighbor as you victimized him with the baseball bat, the law may add on a further punishment because your wrongdoing was also a hate crime based on the identity of the victim that you were attacking. Tomato, pet, person, person with ethnic animus. Notice that the same act, swinging the baseball bat, results in different levels of punishment. The same movement of the bat, the same sin, you can say, has different consequences depending on the victim. The principle is that the amount of trouble you get into is proportionate to the type of victim that is injured or killed. A plant is less important than an animal, which in turn is far less important than a human being. It makes sense that more severe punishment is meted out depending on the type of the victim. 
the magnitude of the offense is measured at least in part by the results of that offense. That same pattern of thought applies when we consider sin against God. God is the ultimate victim, plant, animal, human, God. He is the highest possible object of one's wrongdoing. God is infinite. He is of much a higher sort than a mere person, just like a person is more valuable than an animal or a plant. The Bible says that all sin is ultimately against God. Psalm 51.4, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Even if there are other more immediate victims, the Bible says, and in my notes I have probably 12, 15 verses that show us that sin is against God. Um, Abraham lied to Abimelech about his wife and as a sister, right? And God said to Abimelech in that dream, he said, I kept you from sinning against me by taking his wife to yourself. And many other things. Um, you know, Genesis 39. Let's just look at another example there. In 39, verse number 9, it says, "There is the, okay, this is uh, Joseph being a slave in Egypt. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he, the, the uh, Sir Potiphar, kept back anything from me but you, his wife, that's Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's in Genesis. Those are, I mean, that theology has been established from thousands of years ago. This is nothing new. So the kind of punishment befitting one who commits a crime against God corresponds to God's perfect and infinite person and holiness. That illustration was helpful to me. I hope it is helpful to you as well. Now, various views on the eternal state of a sinful person. Number one, we've talked about some of these before. Number one is people think, well, there's reincarnation. Uh, the view that a person will come back again in another life, even as another person, or perhaps even as an animal, or maybe as the tomato plant. I don't know. They, there's, you know, It's an odd way of thinking to me. The scripture offers no such idea. Hebrews 9.27 indicates that people die once and then they're judged. They do not die twice or more times. I'm, you know, I give due uh, space for the exception cases of uh, people who are physically resurrected by the ministry of Jesus or Elijah, uh, Elisha, and those people would have to see death twice. Um, but that's the rare exception to the general rule. The rapture is another exception to that, by the way. Or Enoch is another exception to that, walking with God, Elijah himself. The second view that people take regarding this matter of, of eternal punishment is universalism, or what's called restorationism. This belief is that all people will eventually be brought into favor with God, um, and if there is such a place as purgatory or hell, it will be emptied out eventually, and all people end, in the end exist in eternal bliss. That's universalism. Either all people are saved or all people will be saved after a time of purgation, purging of their sin. Um, obviously, this contradicts the Bible at, at different points. Revelation 20.10, people raised up and judged, cast into the lake of fire, uh, the, the lake of fire, is said, is a place of unending 
fire and torment and punishment to sinners. And there's others in, uh, in Revelation 14. Um, I'll go there as well. If you want to chase me around in Scripture here, you can do that as well. Revelation 14. You don't have to, though. 14.9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his head or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Unpleasant, yes, but eternal in duration. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Um, this view extends, this view rather of universalism, extends a false promise of life to those who are evil. Usually this also presumes upon God's love. You know, you've heard it, God's love. He wouldn't punish anybody. He's a nice fellow uh, with no regard for his, God's holiness or justice. His love just washes over everything. And this is based on human reason, not on biblical revelation. Human reason and associated intellect and conscience cannot stand on their own because they're thoroughly infected with the sin with which they will be judged. So obviously they want to, to uh, excuse that. The third view, so you have reincarnation, universalism, annihilation is the third view. This is a view that all people or that all unsaved uh, people will ultimately disappear when they die. So the atheist thinks everybody just lives and then they die and then that's it. Theologians who take this annihilation view and some cults like JWs will say that the unbelievers only will be annihilated. Um, They simply cease to exist, going back to what they were like before they were conceived and born. They equate life with existence and death with non-existence. Now, you might say, well, that seems reasonable, but just wait one second. If you are alive, you exist, and if you die, you also exist in the state of death. You die When you die, your spirit is separated from your body, so you are no longer a living nephesh, a living soul. You're a dead soul, but your spirit is goes to where it goes, either heaven or Hades, and your body goes into the grave. Those two will be reunited at the resurrection, and all will stand before God in one form or fashion, before the judgment seat or before the great white throne. Yes? I take it when Revelation 20, verse 10 and 11 says that the dead, both small and great, he saw standing before God. That means they're alive. Only living people stand. Dead people are laid out. So if they stand, that must mean they were resurrected for the purpose of judgment and then for the purpose of, of punishment. So um, they're not, annihilationism is not a true at all. Look at uh, Luke 16. Don't turn there. Uh, but you remember the account of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man being in torment. You know, I need some water. It's hot down here. Abraham says, no, we can't cross over there. You can't cross over here. You can't go back to your family to tell them uh, you're stuck. Um, life is one state of existence. Death is another state of existence. Life was when the body and spirit are together, and death is when the body and spirit are separated. James 2.26 tells us that. 
Now, some understand that the sinner goes to a purgatory-like state and then is, and then is annihilated. That seems to, be, to me to be the worst of both worlds. They get punished in purgatory, and then they get punished by being put out of existence. This makes the time and punishment temporary. So remember the two objections we had earlier on, the duration and the nature of the punishment? Well, it kind of solves them because the duration is shortened and the nature eventually is just uh, snuffing out of existence. So it, it kind of solves the problem, but it doesn't because it kind of punishes the person twice for their sins and also still has the unpleasant part of the punishment, the, the, the fire and the purgation and all of that. And then it also has this problem of annihilation. Another view is to skip the purgation part altogether and just say annihilation happens immediately at death. A serious problem with this view is if, if Christians, so-called, were to hold this view, what happened when Christ died for our sins? If you die and you go out of existence, if you die and you're annihilated, was Christ annihilated? Obviously not. It seems that annihilation forecloses the possibility of resurrection. Obviously, the scripture can't support that. So that view is to be thrown out as well. So restoration, reincarnation, annihilation, all substandard, sub-unbiblical views. Number four is the eternal punishment view. A plain reading of the Bible yields this understanding, namely that those who reject God and Christ are consigned to a place of punishment for eternity. Like the rich man in the parable that the Lord told, they received their good things in this life. You recognize that language? And Lazarus received his evil things. Now the roles are swapped, Abraham says, to the rich man and to Lazarus. Um, The Bible does not teach a doctrine of post-mortem second chances or purging of sins by fire to atone for iniquity. Um, If you are lost at the end of your life, you're lost, period, forever. If you think that you can atone for your sins by some act that you do, either in life or post-mortem, you're gravely mistaken because there's only one act that can atone for sins. And that is, again, I point back to our cross here. The cross work of Jesus Christ is the only act that can purge sins. Now, there are obviously difficulties uh, accepting the doctrine of eternal punishment. There are no biblical difficulties like there are with the previous three views. The Bible says this, but there are difficulties psychologically on the grounds of compassion, fairness, decency, civility. You know, it doesn't seem civilized or your conscience, but it is unmistakably what the Bible says when it deals with the matter of eternal punishment. Well, I'd like to go through next the basics of eternal punishment and then Uh, talk maybe a little bit more about the rationale for it, but it is 10.30, and so I have to try to keep to the time here. If I start into this section, it won't be until 10.45 we're done. So let's, uh, let's pause there with that. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this and help one another if we need it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to receive with um, gratitude the doctrine of the Bible, even those that are difficult. I pray that your hand will 
work on us if we have struggles with this particular doctrine and watch over us, help us to be faithful to the word. And I pray that as we continue, we'll learn a little bit more about this matter next time, and you'll help us to help one another when there are struggles with this that we encounter. Thank you for the kind attention of your people. And for those online as well, although I cannot see them, I pray that you will bless them, whoever they might be. In Jesus' name, amen.